This morning we're going to step away from Job for one week, considering our annual meeting today. I found it fitting to go through Titus chapter 1. So if you could please turn there to Titus chapter 1, I will be reading the entire chapter. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Whenever we have uh, new visitors, I wonder what is going through their minds when they read the sign that says, Grace Presbyterian Church. If they have never been to a Presbyterian church, they're probably thinking, uh, I get the grace part, but what about the long, weird-looking, hard-to-pronounce word next to it? What does that mean? Is this a Christian church, or is it a cult? Well, to help with this, the word Presbyterian comes from the Greek word presbuteros, which translates as elder. And the name of the church describes how the church is to be governed. So to be a Presbyterian church is to be governed by elders. Uh, So in a way, uh, the sign could say, Grace, a church governed by elders. And this form of government is to be distinguished from two other forms of church government. 
There's congregationalism, where the congregation governs the church, or the Episcopal form of church government, where bishops govern the church. Uh, Many of you may have grown up in the Presbyterian Church, and only some of you are probably familiar with the way the church is governed and why. While others don't quite understand why we do what we do as a church, even after years of membership. Yet still, for some of you, you may be indifferent. You don't care. Or you don't understand why it is so important. So why are we Presbyterian? Is it because it is the most practical? Is it because it is the wisest form of government? Well, yes, but these are not the only reasons why. It is the most practical and wisest because it has been ordained by our most wise God. We're Presbyterian, not only because it works, but also because it is biblical. This ought to be All of our conviction, especially the members of the church, that we are Presbyterian, not just because I like the music, or I like the preaching, or I like the people. Those things are good, but it's mainly because it's biblical. God's word teaches it. So today I want to begin a two-part series One part today, and hopefully one part maybe towards the end of next month, which will cover the six principles of Presbyterianism. Today we will cover the first three principles. And the three principles will answer the questions. How do we appoint officers, that is, elders and deacons? What is the nature of being an elder? And how many elders are we to have? In a church. First, how do we appoint officers? But before we become pragmatic and speak to the human side of it, let us not forget that first and foremost, all officers are appointed by divine appointment. It is not only left to human wisdom. As it says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, as it is summarized in our confession of faith that we confess this morning in chapter 25, section 3, after Jesus ascended, he gave gifts to men. And what were those gifts? Or better, we should say, who were those gifts? Well, they were other men. These are the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, For the building up of the body of Christ. In the church today we have two office bearers. Elder, as it is here in Ephesians chapter 4. Described as shepherds and teachers. And deacons. Or if you want to distinguish between a teaching elder. That is the pastor. And a ruling elder. Then you could say we have three office bearers. Also we have temporary Officers, such as evangelists, or what we call today missionaries and church planters. While the office of apostle, the word apostle can translate as commissioner, you think of the Great Commission, or ambassador, right? 
and the office of prophet are no longer in existence. And all officers in the church are appointed by Christ. It just differs in how. When Jesus walked this earth, he handpicked his 12 disciples to become apostles, with the one exception of Matthias, who would replace Judas Iscariot, and Paul, whom he would visit later on personally. Then the apostles would appoint elders, who would later appoint more elders, as we see here in Titus chapter 1, and on and on it goes till you get to Grace Presbyterian Church. This is why Paul opens up his letter to Titus with Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because his authority came directly from Christ to tell Titus to put things in order in Crete and to appoint elders. Now today, the risen and exalted Christ, by his sovereignty and by his providence, guides, gives wisdom and knowledge primarily through his word. He opens doors and closes doors so that the right men are chosen for office. So today, the first principle of Presbyterianism is that office bearers are chosen by the people, by the members of the church. And this was a pattern that was already in place after our Lord ascended to his throne. In Acts chapter 1, as the disciples met for prayer in the upper room, Peter stood up among 120 disciples and reminded them that Judas Iscariot's vacant spot needed to be filled. So Peter's role was to make a case for a need of a new officer. In verse 20 of Acts chapter 1, quoting from Psalm 109, it says, Let another take his, that is Judas's office. The word office can also be translated as bishopric or episcopate. This is where Anglicans get the word episcopal from. It is also translated as overseership or the office of an overseer or better, the office of an elder. So all of the apostles were elders, but not all elders are apostles. Because an apostle had to meet certain qualifications, as it is described in Acts chapter 1. He had to have been present among the twelve disciples and Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, from Jesus' baptism to his death on the cross. And he had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection, which means he had to see and be in the presence of the risen Christ. Once this is determined, in verse 23, it says that they put forward or nominated two men for the office. Now, who did this? Who nominated them? Well, it was the 120 disciples in the upper room. So the people nominated the two officers, but only one could fill the office. So they cast lots. In other words, they rolled dice. And they relied on what some would call luck, but what we would call divine providence, to determine who the Lord chose for the office of apostle. And it landed on Matthias. Now today, we no longer cast lots to appoint officers. This is not what we're going to do later, for instance. This would change even in the apostles' time. 
In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas went to three locations. They went to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And in each location, there were disciples there who would plant churches. And it says that they appointed elders for them in every church. Uh, You can't see it in the English, but in the Greek, the word appointed can also be translated as, or with the force of saying, to appoint by popular vote. So the role of Paul and Barnabas was not to lord their authority over the people and to place someone in authority whom the people did not approve of. Paul didn't tell Titus in Titus chapter 1, I am going to appoint elders in every town. No, he told Titus to appoint elders in every town. And I believe following the pattern of popular vote. They are to be members and natives of the local church. Much like Peter in Acts chapter 1, Paul and Barnabas in chapter 14 verse 23 were just there to guide, to direct, to recommend certain men to office, to teach, to speak to the people and make the case of the need of having elders. This is what our session of elders, what we are called to do. Because without elders, you don't have a church. And to further support this, the pattern of election by popular vote was also in place in the election of deacons. Acts chapter 6, as the church grew, there were problems. Go figure. I say wherever there are people, there will be problems. And the problem was that there weren't enough hands to serve. The Gentile women were complaining that they weren't being served in the daily distribution. So the twelve apostles gathered the full number of disciples and told them that it is not right for those who have been appointed to preach the word to serve tables. You see already the distinction between an elder and a deacon. Elders have their role in preaching and teaching while deacons care for the temporal needs of the church. And sometimes, you know, the elders are called to assist, maybe to guide, to grant a little more wisdom. But nevertheless, the roles are distinct. So they said, therefore, brothers, speaking to the whole congregation, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So they, the people, chose seven men by popular vote because it says that the whole gathering was pleased by what they said. And they went forward and elected deacons. So we have established that officers are to be chosen by popular vote. The second principle of Presbyterianism, which answers the question, what is the nature of being an elder, is that the offices of bishop and elder are identical. In the Anglican and Episcopal tradition, they tend to distinguish between bishop and elder or presbyter because the root words for each are different. The Greek word for bishop is the word episkopos. This is where they get episcopal from, right? While the word for elder or presbyter is, as I said, presbyteros. And in their tradition, they give bishops authority over their elders or presbyters. 
But for Presbyterians, we don't see a distinction just because they have two different root words. Because as you search the scriptures, you know that doing a word study is not enough when you study the scriptures. Many people rely on word studies. Word studies are not enough. You need to study the entire context to gain proper understanding of a text. So as you search the scriptures, the first thing to notice is that elders and bishops, or in your Bibles it's translated as overseers, are never mentioned in the same sentence or verse, yet they perform similar functions and they hold equal authority. For example, Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, addresses overseers or bishops, but he doesn't mention elders. In James chapter 5, verse 14, James directs the sick to call on the elders of the church, but he doesn't mention bishops or overseers. And nowhere in scripture does it say that bishops have authority over elders. I think that would be important if that was the case. The second thing to notice is found in our text this morning. When Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders. The word there is presbuteros. I'm, I'm going to hear everybody saying that word going forward instead of elders, right? He said to appoint elders. In every town as I directed you. Then he goes on to describe the character traits of an elder as what? An overseer in verse 7. For an overseer, describing the elder, for an overseer, an episcopos, a bishop, as God's steward, must be above reproach. So the word for overseer or bishop is just describing the function of an elder. An elder is an overseer. He watches over the people. Also in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Paul calls on all the elders of the Ephesian church to come to him. Then later in verse 20, he refers to them as bishops. These are the same elders he just called out. He calls them bishops or overseers to care for the church. So we conclude that the office of bishop and elder are one and the same. And they have equal authority. And this is up against the Anglican and even the Roman Catholic tradition. Also, Paul speaks of the character and duties of an elder. First, the character of an elder. He is to be above reproach, meaning he is to be approved by others. He is to have a good reputation. Not arrogant or quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And his children are believers, or another translation is that they are faithful. We're not judging hearts here. It is speaking of outward actions. Based on what we see, his family is well governed, 
And his children are generally obedient and disciplined. Guess what? There are no such thing as perfect children, right? If adult Christians whine and complain, you'll get a fit or two from, from their children, okay? This is speaking of a general direction. Secondly, what are his duties? I'm going to limit myself to this text because there are many other duties that we're not going to be able to get to today. Paul says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So it says he must hold firm to the word of God and he must be teachable. This will require him to be here on Sundays to hear the word proclaimed and taught. He is not an individualist. He doesn't isolate himself from everyone else and read his Bible on his own and assumes his own authority. He's not just dishing it out. He's also receiving it. He is to hold fast to the word of God. He does read his Bible on his own, but he is also being taught the word of God. He recognizes that Jesus has given the church teachers, plural Not singular, and not the teachers of me, myself, and I. So you're looking for someone who is both grounded in the scriptures, and he is humble enough that he can be taught. And there is an end to this. The elder is an overseer of souls. He watches over the people. He holds firm to the word of God as taught so that he may instruct others in sound doctrine And rebuke those who contradict it. This is one of the most important duties of an elder, if not the most important duty of an elder. Out of love for Christ and out of love for his people, he is to instruct in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. He's not just to teach sound doctrine and ignore bad doctrine, he is to call out. Bad doctrine. If he can't, then he should rethink the office. Because that is where he does some of his most important shepherding. Paul tells Titus that those of the circumcision party, Paul doesn't speak more seriously than when he speaks of the circumcision party. They were teaching that in order to be saved, You had to be circumcised. And they were upsetting whole families and dividing the church. And Paul says here that the circumcision party must be silenced. He says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. Although we need to watch ourselves that we do not cross these lines that I'm about to mention. But to correct bad teaching or false teaching is not about being arrogant. As elders, you will face false accusations all the time. It's not about being arrogant. It's not about being a know-it-all. It's not about being prideful. It's not about being divisive. 
And it is not about being a lover of controversy. It is about protecting the flock. He is to identify and say, this is sound doctrine, and that over there is not. And he is to know why. And then he is to go to the person who is teaching it and causing division and clearly tell him to stop. His tone of voice may vary based on the seriousness of the situation. But false teaching or bad teaching in the church must be silenced. The third principle of Presbyterianism answers the question, how many elders are we to appoint? Answer, a plurality of elders, meaning more than one. If we go back to our text, it is clear that Paul commands Titus to appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular. And to further enlighten this text, again, we go back to Acts chapter 14, verse 23, where it says that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, plural, in every church, singular. So elders are to be appointed in every church, in every town, however large or however small. Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Paul calls on the elders, plural, of the Ephesian church, singular. There must be more than one elder in the church. Again, Paul addresses the Philippian saints with the overseers or bishops, plural. So the church is to have a plurality of elders. I would add, wisdom tells us that we ought to have a good household to elder ratio. Why? Why a plurality? I'm not just going to say because God says so, even though he does. But there are practical reasons why. I'm just going to list a couple because it is good for the church and it is good for the pastor. First, without a plurality of elders, you'll end up with some of the same problems we often see in congregationalist models of church government. And it can go in one of two Directions, or maybe even three directions. Depending on his personality, you'll either have a dictator for a pastor who calls all the shots without any checks or balances, right? And that may even lead to pastor worship, where the pastor is worshipped and he can do no wrong, he could say no wrong, and this is how false teaching tends to creep in. So there is no one to protect the congregation. Or you'll have mob rule, where the congregation will run over the pastor and force him out and have their way with the church, and no one to protect the pastor. Although there have been church splits over division between elders, yet there is more security in a plurality of elders. And even after a church split, you would hope you would still have wise elders who will rally what's left of the congregation back together in the aftermath. And if needed, you can appeal to your regional church, right, the presbytery, to help aid in such a situation. Also, the elders help the pastor in his work that he may devote more of his time in the area of preaching, teaching, and ministering the sacraments and prayer. For example, the work of visitation and visiting the members of the church. Many people believe that this is solely the work of the pastor. But no, it is the work of the session, 
We see this in James chapter 5, verse 14. And we also see this in our form of government. Chapter 10, section 3. I'm sure everybody carries a book of church order with them in their pocket. Anyway. Elders who, as Peter commands, shepherd the flock of God that is among them, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have them, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in their charge, but being examples of the flock. And as I say, the more the merrier. The more hands on deck who are devoted to the same mission, there's the qualification, right? They're devoted to the same mission, the better it is for the church. This has been the pattern of the church from its beginning stages, and it was all ordained by the Lord. Again, without elders, you don't have a church. You'll go from being a church to a work of the church or a work of the presbytery. And we should think about this seriously. Because if we look around, if either the session looks around or you as a congregation, if you look around and you can't identify possible elders or those of elder material, those who probably need some time to grow and mature, then there is something seriously wrong here spiritually. If men are not willing to step up to the role, then this may be a symptom of a deeper spiritual problem. I have a few reasons here, and they're not exhaustive, and they don't necessarily apply to us. But these are things we ought to be aware of and ask ourselves. Is this us? Is it me? See, your pastor and your session, we're not all knowing, okay? And people can easily hide. So if we look around and we can't identify possible elders or those of elder material, either there is sin, maybe secret sins, hidden from the session, maybe there's grumbling among the congregants, maybe there's dissatisfaction, discontentment, or we may be negligent in our own calling as the session. Maybe there's sin among the elders. Division, lack of communication, maybe a lack of love. There could be false teaching coming from either the session or among the congregants. Maybe someone is taking upon himself or herself to appoint themselves as elders of the church without being appointed and teaching something they shouldn't. Or the members of the church themselves are becoming lazy in pursuing sound doctrine and growing in their knowledge of the word or they're not receiving the sound teaching altogether. They have hardened their hearts to it, and they prefer the tickling of their ears. That is why it is important to examine ourselves as a church, as a congregation, and ask, where are we in this regard? Are we maturing spiritually? If yes, then there will be elders stepping up, or we'll be able to identify the elders in our church. So we should ask, is there sin that we are harboring that is making our men less effective and less motivated to pursue the offices of elder or deacon? Is there false teaching somewhere in the church? Or is there bad teaching? It doesn't have to be false. It could be just bad teaching. 
Is someone among us teaching something they shouldn't? Or is the congregation either not seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and come to a deeper knowledge of his word? Or are they refusing to listen to sound teaching? Are they hardening themselves against the word and against their session? This may take the form of someone deciding for themselves what is important and what is not important for the session to teach. It may take the form of, well, I don't find it all that important. I'm just going to skip it today. This will contradict what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account. Well, listen, it goes both ways. He says, let them do this with joy. And not with groaning. If the session is not shepherding the way you would expect. Ask yourselves. Am I making it easy. For them to shepherd me. Or am I making it difficult. Let us ask ourselves these questions. We can ask this corporately. But I encourage you to ask these questions of yourselves individually as well. In conclusion we have established. Three of the six principles of Presbyterianism. First, that officers are to be chosen by the people. Second, that the office of bishop and elder are identical. And third, that each church ought to have a plurality of elders or more than one elder. But also, we are to remember that the origin of all of the offices of the church is found in Christ himself. He is the author and embodiment of what it means to be an elder and a deacon of God's people. He was a preacher and teacher of God's word. He is the good shepherd of his sheep and the overseer of their souls. He was a deacon or a servant who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us, beloved. So may we grow in Christ's likeness. May we serve the way he served. May we be faithful to the high calling we have as a congregation and as the elders of Christ's church to pass down the tradition that has been handed down to us. Amen.